Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Studio Podcast. First of all, just want to say thanks for listening. We are excited to get this podcast up and running. If you are new to Studio, we are a church in Greenville, South Carolina. Our heart is to create a place where God and people meet so beautiful things can happen and beautiful things are created. Thanks for listening. And with that, let's get right to it. All right. Well, we're going to jump right into part two. Um, this Future Ready series, T did a great job just kind of setting a little bit of the context of why we're doing this. If we want to just help all of us as a community of people move forward together instead of just moving and not really talking about it. And so last week we covered a bit of ground around the idea and the concept of time. And I know most of you were here, some of you just is your first time. We just talked about the concept of time and how time is something that God created in this expanse of eternity. And he placed us inside the context of time and space. And just understanding that there is a beginning and there is an end. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that tonight. And we talked a little bit about how each age, each person views time differently talked about how 20-year-olds view time, how 30-year-olds view time, and all the way on up to 80s, 90-year-olds and how they view time. And the whole idea around is wrapping around the idea that we're actually moving somewhere. Now, you may sit in this seat tonight, and if you sat there for the next 24 hours and you physically did not move, it doesn't mean that you didn't move literally because time is actually moving. You can measure the past, you can measure the future, but you actually can't measure the present. And oftentimes when we're moving forward in life, if we don't step into something we understand, we just recreate the past and we try to reproduce what we've already experienced. So our challenge as a church, but more important, our challenge as individuals is that we're willing to step into a future that we didn't know even existed. Two people, that's good, awesome. So tonight's topic, tonight's title is Future is a Choice. The future is a choice. The future is created by those who choose courage or choose fear. The future is created by those who choose courage or choose fear. Now, what's interesting about time, there's actually a Christian view of time, or more accurately, a biblical view of time. This is important because not the entire world looks at time the same way as we do in the Christian faith. Other world religions look at time very differently than we do. Now, in the Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning. What did that mean, that time started? That in the expanse of eternity and infinity, no beginning, no end, God created time. And in the beginning, he created time, and that's when it began. So we've been living in this clock, so to speak, before it could be measured, before it could be fully understood, before humanity went, oh wait, the sun's coming up and the sun's going down. And then as we advance in humanity, we begin to notice that the solar system's moving. Everything is moving. There's motion and movement and loads of mystery in this thing called time and space. And so the biblical view of the time actually started. And as you get through scripture, you get into the New Testament and you have the apostle Paul. He begins to say things like this. And the time will come to an end. Like this thing we call time actually has an expiration to it. It doesn't mean everything 
disappeared. It means you step into what's called eternity. So what we do with our time and in the time that's been given to us actually has a connection to eternity. It has an eternal purpose, and it actually brings us into eternity. That is not the case in Hindu, for example, in Hindi, in Hindu religions in India. The idea of time is not a beginning or an end. Their idea of time is cyclic in nature. So this is where you get the idea of reincarnation. And I read a story a number of years ago. There was a man, a Westerner, that was visiting India. And he's walking the street with an Indian man. And thousands of people are walking by. And there's that spot in between the street and the sidewalk that they call the gutter. Got them on all of our streets here. And this Westerner is walking down the street. I mean, thousands of people. I believe it was in Delhi. And he's walking down the street, and he sees this man laying in the gutter, and he's literally dying before his very own eyes. They said his flesh was rotting, and he's just laying there literally reaching for his last breath. And he's watching in amazement and shock of why, why is nobody helping this guy? Why are thousands of people walking by this man laying in the gutter and not helping him? And so he asked his host, he said, why are we just watching this? He said, oh, nobody will touch him because he deserved this because of what he did in his previous existence. So the idea of Eastern religion is largely around the idea of cyclical nature. It never ends. You just keep reliving, reliving, and what you do in this life, you get put into something else. And some believe you come into an animal, you come back into a rock or a tree or another human being. But that's very distinctly different than the faith of the Christian faith, is that we have a beginning and what we do in this time actually has an end and we step into eternity and it has eternal purposes. This is crucial for us to understand. For some of you, like, you knew that, but I want to paint a picture. This is a very unique view in the context of world religion, and other religions have different variations of that. So as we, as we jump in tonight, what I want to do, I want to take you to a story. It's a story in the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible tonight, your app, go ahead and get it open. Go ahead and get it to 1 King chapter 16. We're not actually going to read anything in 16, 17, or 18, but please turn there. I want you to experience something with me as you turn to chapter 16 of 1 Kings. I'm going to talk about a man named Elijah. He's also known as a prophet Elijah. Now, this is a fascinating story. It's hard to understand if we don't give a context or give the backdrop. I want to focus most of the talk tonight on chapter 19. That's where we're going to end, specifically one or two verses that I want to bring everything to a head. But I need to give some context of what's happening. So for those of you that are taking notes, I want you to write this down from 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 27 all the way to chapter 19, verse 19, is roughly about 16 years have gone by. This is helpful. Sometimes when we read scripture, we think, oh, this happened in a week or this happened in a month. Oftentimes when you read scripture, this is why whenever I read stories in the Bible, I'm always looking up the chronological timeline of it because like, oh, this took place over 20 years. Sometime we're actually going to study together Acts chapter 2 all the way to Acts chapter 15. And that's actually a 20-year span of time. This is helpful to understand because sometimes these moments happen in these stories and you think this is so out of place. It's like all of a sudden they're doing good one day and the next day they're doing bad. Well, because years went by. 
And we all know it's like to have years go by when something doesn't get met or something doesn't happen the way we want it to happen. We get frustrated, mad. We run in fear. We do all kinds of interesting things because we're humans. So I like to bring a very human element to all these stories in the Bible. And that's the tendency. We kind of just gloss over the pages, but we don't get into the depth of the story to understand what's actually taking place. And believe it or not, we can learn a lot about human psychology simply by reading these stories and understanding the context, the tension, and the human struggle and the narrative of what God wants to do on the earth. So from chapter 16, verse 27-ish, to about 19, verse 19 and chapter 19, it's literally about a 16-year span of time. Now, here's, if you want to write another note on your pad, on your pad or notepad, from verse 27 of chapter 16 to verse 1 of chapter 17, that's 11 years. So let's just read this together. I said I wasn't going to, but some of you look really intrigued by that statistic. So on that note, let's go to the very end of chapter 16. And between 27 and the end of the chapter is literally an 11-year span of time. But let's read verse 33. And Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So the main character is Ahab. Ahab is king. Now to understand the, the, the tension of this situation, you have to understand King Solomon. King Solomon was David's son. And King Solomon goes down in history as many still say to this day. The Bible says it, and it's a lot of times happened since scripture. Solomon was the wisest man to ever walk the face of the earth. He is the gold standard of someone that was walking in the wisdom of God and honestly in the wisdom of man as well. So King Solomon happened. Ahab, this is 50 years after King Solomon died. And King Solomon's reign was called the Golden Age of Israel. It's the most peaceful, prosperous time in all of Israel's history, even to the day. And 50 years later, the nation completely nosedived into pagan worship. It's a tragic tale of what happened. Even when you have all the momentum of God, what can happen in a very short amount of time if you don't watch certain decisions that you make? It's just a good note to us as people, as a community. Like, you think, oh, there's no way we're ever going to go down that road. This is a really cautionary tale of just how humanity works and the conduct of human struggle and when you're dealing with dynamics. Now, there's something else I wanted to share with you. I forgot this part before this story. There's actually two general will views that I think can help us simply understand how we look at our life and time. There's one that it's been coined by a great theologian named Greg Boyd. And he talked about the blueprint worldview and the warfare worldview. Say warfare worldview really fast, 10 times. It's really hard. I tried it and I get to... I stumble on the second one. A blueprint worldview, the idea of a blueprint worldview is this, is that everything was designed to happen that happens. So in other words, if you get sick, oh, that's what the blueprint, the blueprint design was for you to be sick right now. If you got, if this tragedy happened to you or this amazing thing happened to you, it was like you were submitted to the idea that a blueprint had been written and it's just happening. I have no choice in the matter. 
that is a blueprint worldview, which is very common in Christian circles. It goes back centuries, and it's still very much alive today, that God makes me sick to teach me a lesson. So that's what a blueprint worldview will teach you. A warfare worldview is the, almost the exact opposite in this sense, is that it's not designed by God, but we're actually in a war with darkness, that the kingdom of light is at war with the kingdom of darkness. And the idea is this, that things that happen, we actually engage with what's happening to see the kingdom of light take place. This is a warfare worldview. There are two very distinct uh, distinctions here. And I know some of you come maybe from background that taught you everything in blueprint. This is how God wanted it, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's others of you that maybe, maybe this whole concept of like, oh, actually, we actually, the future is a choice. The future actually involves a choice from us. So let's get back to the story. So we have this Solomon passed away 50 years, King Ahab, and the Bible says he was worse than all the kings before. And what did he do? He actually turned the nation's attention from worshiping Yahweh to worshiping a fake idol called Baal. Now, Ahab was a bad dude, but who he chose to marry is a whole nother conversation. Her name is Jezebel. Now, have you noticed no one named their daughter Jezebel anymore? I've yet to meet someone that named their daughter Jezebel. And if anyone comes to me and says, hey, I'm going to name my daughter Jezebel, I'm going to say, you really want to rethink that. You're going to create so much trauma for your child. It's going to be painful stigma. They're going to have to walk with the rest of their life. Jezebel was Ahab's wife, and she was a bad, evil, dark woman. Her, her mission in life was to kill anybody that feared God. So she literally made it her occupation, her passion, her drive was to eradicate earth of anyone that feared God. So you have Ahab turning a nation toward pagan worship, and you have his wife who is killing anyone that fears God. So here's the context that the prophet Elisha steps into. So Elijah's great because in the beginning of his 16 years, he's got fresh legs. He's fresh out of whatever school he graduated from. He is ready to take on life. He's ready to conquer, and he sees Ahab and Jezebel, and he sees his own nation no-diving into just a dark, dark season. So prophet Elijah is pretty confident. It's one thing to have confidence. It's one thing to have heaven back you in your confidence. And the prophet Elijah said, oh, this is what we're going to do. I'm going to call it a drought in the land. So he stands up, and he declares a drought over the land. And it actually happened. Think about that. He was controlling the climate. He wasn't. God was with them, but work with me on this. He actually had the authority to control the climate in this context. So here you have Ahab and Jezebel. They're running rampant with their leadership, worshiping pagan idols and killing anyone that fears God. And then you have the prophet over here saying, I'm causing a drought. Why would he cause a drought? The idea is this, that it would turn the heart of a people back to God. That's the whole idea. This is very Old Testament methods, especially to turn people's hearts back to God was something of this nature causing a drought. So this takes place. So years go by. They say anywhere from three to five years goes by. Some say about three and a half years, this drought is now taking place. Now Ahab is angry with prophet Elijah, and so is Jezebel. They are trying to find this guy to eradicate him. So Prophet Elijah is really good fugitive. He knows where to hide. He knows where to go. He's doing a phenomenal job. Then you fast forward, 
There's a really cool character in this story. His name is Obadiah. Look at your neighbor and say, this guy's cool. This guy's cool, and I'll tell you why. Because Obadiah worked for Ahab and Jezebel. He actually worked in the governmental system of Ahab and Jezebel. But what they didn't know is that he feared God. Now, talk about a creative person that can masquerade in an evil, dark governmental system, but still fear God. Pretty phenomenal. He was so beautiful in fearing God that he hid a hundred prophets. He hid them in caves and kept them fed and kept them alive during this rampage of killing all the prophets that feared God. So one day Ahab wakes up, and this is in chapter 18. Ahab wakes up, and he gets Obadiah and says, hey, listen, we need to find Elijah. This drought is just crippling our economy. Our, our, our entire strength of the nation is falling every day. We need to find this prophet, and we need to kill him. So he said, Obadiah, you go that way. I'm going to go this way, and if you see him, kill him. So Ahab takes off, and then Obadiah goes one way. Well, in chapter 18, the Bible says Elijah appears, and Elijah had, and uh, he's notorious for just showing up out of nowhere. He actually, they say he was translated from place to place. So he shows up, he sees Obadiah, and he said, Ob he tells Obadiah to tell your boss, Ahab, I want a meeting with him. And Obadiah said, that's fine, but the problem is, if I go tell Ahab, you want a meeting with him, and you don't show up, I'm a dead man. Because, and if you read in chapter 18, because I don't know if the Spirit's going to take you somewhere else and you don't show up to the meeting on time. So Obadiah knew who Elijah was. And Elijah said, now listen, I'll put it in my phone, I'll be there, give me the location, the pin, and I'll be there at that such and such a time. So Obadiah, he said, did you know that I hid a hundred prophets? He wants to make sure, I think it's a way of saying, just make sure he, God knows, and I want you to know, I'm not a part of this. I'm not a part of Ahab and Jezebel's rampage. I'm actually hiding a hundred prophets right now. So this sets the stage for chapter 18 and as we get into chapter 19. Chapter 18, there's this conflict on Mount Carmel. Elijah wanted to meet with Ahab because he wanted to have a, a basically a moment to decide who had the real God. And so Elijah shows up, and 400 prophets of Baal show up, and now the nation is watching this conflict between one prophet who feared God and 400 prophets of Baal. Someday, I hope someone makes a good movie out of this, not a cheesy one, an actually good movie out of this. So there's this conflict, but there's this moment where Elijah stands up, and he looked at the 400 prophets of Baal, and everyone that's listening, he said, I am the only prophet left in the land. Which is fascinating because he just found out there's a hundred prophets being hidden in a cave. I think this is actually the first kink in his armor that revealed a character flaw. He was incredibly confident, but we all know sometimes your greatest strength becomes your greatest weakness. So he said, I am the only prophet in the land. And he just heard there's a hundred being hidden right now. But this amazing thing happened. Prop Elijah goes, all right, you guys do what you're going to do. Build an altar, put an animal on the sacrifice, and you call down fire. And if your God burns up your sacrifice, then you guys win. But if that didn't work and God burned up my sacrifice, my God wins. And the entire nation repents and turns back to God. So remember, this is around, again, this is around 13-ish years after 
um, chapter 16, verse 27. So I want you to give context. Time has now gone by. This is not a new conflict. This is a growing conflict that now meets on Mount Carmel. So the prophet, the Baal, built an altar. They put an animal on the sacrifice. And the Bible says in the end of chapter 18, all day long they chanted and danced and cut themselves so much that they just continued to bleed out, calling on their God to burn up this sacrifice. And the way the story goes, it Elijah mocked them the entire time. He basically said, is your God going to the bathroom? Is your God on vacation? He's just mocking and mocking him all day long. Talk about a confident dude. This guy was confident. And they could not get any God to call down fire or to bring fire down to burn the sacrifice. Elijah said, you guys done? They're done. He said, my turn. He built another sacrifice, which I think is beautiful. Instead of using an existing one that was dedicated to certain purposes, he built a brand new one that had one purpose. He built an altar. What's an altar? It's the place of worship. It's the place that you come to, whether it's a physical location or it's you being the altar. We come to this place where we have one purpose and aim our worship to him. So he built his altar. He puts an animal on the altar, but he ups the ante. He takes 12 buckets of water. And he pours it over the altar. They build a moat around the altar, and the moat is now filled with water. And he calls down fire, and sure enough, God comes down in fire, consumed the entire sacrifice. Nothing was left like it didn't even exist. And how many would say, you've got 12, 13 years of tension, and if you were Elijah and that happened, how many of you would think it would start an awakening? It would start a repentance. It would start what we love to call a revival. How many would, have, would think that? Like, if you were there like, okay, that God's fake, this one's real. That would be the assumption, accurate assumption for Elijah to go, oh, a nation's going to repent before God now because of that. Well, guess what? They don't. They actually don't repent. So he had fresh legs 13 years ago. Now he's in a spot where nothing seems to work anymore. When you can call down drought, you can raise the dead, you can provide oil and flour for a widow, endless for the rest of her life, and then you have that happen, what else can you do? I mean, you're at the end of your road. You don't have any other options. So the end of chapter 18 to the beginning of chapter 19 most timelines will say three years passed. Some will say, excuse me, some will say up to five years have passed from Mount Carmel to beginning of chapter 19. Why is this the big deal? Because we read this story often. For those of you that aren't familiar or familiar, we read this story and think, man, why didn't chapter 19 he decide to flee? So this is where we're going to pick up the story. Are you guys with me? Okay, let's go to chapter 19 together. And we're going to kind of work our way through this chapter. I laid all that because I want to take you to a place in chapter 19 that has to do with future. So let's go into verse 2 of chapter 19. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the God do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba which belonged to Judah, and left his servant there. Now remember, Mount Carmel and this moment is anywhere from three to five years has passed. Why is that a big deal? Because it makes sense 
that if this happened the next day, it would be so strange to have a Mount Carmel experience. I've heard so many preachers say, you know, Sunday is a great day, but then Monday you get depressed. That's not what's happening here. It's not like Elijah had a great Sunday and he woke up the next morning scared for his life. Time went by. The nation didn't repent. Things weren't working out the way he thought they would work out. And he was assigned by God. So three to five years later, he hears word that Jezebel's out to get him again. And he runs for his life. This shows you the power, this shows you the psychology of what's happening in his mental and emotional space. So now let's go down to verse four. But he himself went a day journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree and he prayed that he might die. I want you to listen to what he says here. We're going to talk about this. He said, it is enough. Now, Lord, take my life for I am no better than my father's. That right there reveals his mental and emotional state. It is enough. What is he saying? I have been doing this for 15 years, 13 years, 16 years, depending what timeline you look at. But I've been doing this for almost a decade and a half. I'm done. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. Here you have this man that was the most courageous person. He is so courageous that even 800 years later, they still held him at the high standard of courage. And here's the most courageous man now living in absolute terror and fear. It is enough. He's done. Look at the second thing he says. He said, now, Lord, take my life. He's now suicidal. But look at the last thing. For I am no better than my father. Elijah revealed that he was carrying this weight. And it's a legitimate weight. He's carrying this weight that I am responsible to continue the movement of God through my life to the next generation. He gave his entire being to that idea, and it failed. How many have ever given your life to something for years and years and years, and it fails? That's what we call a limp around here. When you've given your entire being to an idea, to a dream, maybe a calling from God, and it fails. That right there is a very tough space to be. Doesn't mean it failed forever, but it's failed. And I want to challenge you, this is the psychological, emotional, mental space that Elijah's in. I have failed my fathers. And then look at the next verse. Then he lay and took a nap. You know, Sometimes we just need to take a nap. Let's just be really honest right now. Some of us just need to take naps more often than we're used to. I don't know about you, but when I don't get enough sleep, I start having the most weirdest, irrational, emotional thoughts to like, where is this coming from? And they feel so real. Like, you're just like, oh, my gosh, this is my reality. I'm so convinced this is my reality. This is it. I mean, oh, my gosh, my life. And my, it's amazing what happens. Then you take a nap and you wake up and you go, oh, my gosh, that's embarrassing that I even thought that. So sometimes we just need to take a nap. Sometimes we literally just need to call it and go to bed and wake up and see how we feel at the end of that. And that's what Elijah does. He just takes a nap. And the best part, an angel comes and wakes him and says, hey, arise and eat. So we're now an angel. So you got to take a nap, fire up the grill, have some food. 
That right there is a recipe. That is a rhythm. I'm, I'm being funny, but I'm actually being genuinely serious. That rhythm of resting and feasting is crucial because we live in a culture that is anti-everything we believe in. It is hard work. It is wearisome. You're going to get hit with resistance if you are following Jesus. Oftentimes we think if I'm following Jesus, everything opens up. Actually, it all begins to close in. And now you're faced against something called culture, resistance. You're facing that. So having a regular rhythm of taking rest, taking naps, and eating well. That right there is a rhythm that must be established in our life. Especially if you want to change the world and change history. Then he looked and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water so he ate and drank and lay down again. Some of us need two naps. <laughs> and the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat because the journey is too great for you. So now, before we get into the rest of this passage, now the angel takes Elijah on a 200-mile journey. Why 200 miles? Because he was in the jurisdiction of Ahab and Jezebel. And God wanted to take him out of the jurisdiction where they didn't, they didn't have authority. So they took him 200 miles outside of their, outside of their, so that he'd be on the outside of their jurisdiction. So God takes him on the journey. What's fascinating, it was a 40 days and 40 night journey. And what's even more intriguing to me, God doesn't say a word to him the entire time. This is fascinating to me. Because oftentimes we want God to speak to us, and oftentimes he's like, I'm not talking. You need to experience yourself right now. You need to sit in whatever you're feeling and experiencing for a little bit. Sometimes our prayers are trying to get out of something God wants us to experience. I'm not talking about sickness. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about this wrestle inside, this unsettledness inside, this, this whole thing of emotional, mental space. It's just restless. It's, it's, not, it's not fully alive. It's intention. It's the human struggle. And God's like, you need to experience that. And in Elijah's case, it was 40 days. Imagine that walk all by yourself, 200 miles. That's a lot of thinking. That's a lot of feeling yourself. So 40 days, 40 nights. So now let's go. Let's go to verse uh, 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's the first thing God says to him after 40 days and 40 nights. What are you doing? Now, I remember reading that verse and thinking, it sounded sarcastic. Like, what are you doing here? And I realized, no, that's not sarcastic. God actually took him there. So he was actually genuinely asking him, what's going on? So after 40 days and 40 nights by yourself and 16 years of a failed move of God, you're going to have something to say, and this is what he says. I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. It's amazing what fear will do. Fear will think you are the only one dealing with this. Fear will isolate you when that is so far from reality. And Elijah had heard hundreds of prophets are being saved, and yet he was convinced he was the only one. Fear does crazy things to people. It makes you feel isolated and alone. So this is why he's saying this, I'm the only one left, I'm the only one left. 
Now, there's this moment I want to capture for you. Let's go to verse 11. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, the earth shook, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. Now, before we talk about small voice, let's look at the wind, the earthquake, and the fire. Elijah was familiar with earthquakes. He was familiar with wind. He was very familiar with fire, especially when you look at the prophet, the Baal on Mount Carmel. He was familiar but the last part of that verse is still small voice. If you look at the original language, it actually means no sound. It actually means the space between words. So it's not even a whisper. That's some translation, if you go read the original language, it's actually talking about a space where there's nothing. Why is this a big deal? Because in order to find out where God is, you have to find out where he isn't. Some of us are waiting for the past experiences to happen again because we know God's in it. But when it happens, he's not in it. Some of us are actually, in order to move into your future, in order to step into what God has for you, you have to let go of past experiences with him. You have to not try to reproduce it. Man, if the wind comes, then I know he's with me. If the earthquake comes, I know he's with me. If the fire comes, I know he's with me. God's not going to show up if you want something new. And if you want to move into your future, it's going to be something you've never experienced before. And in this moment, Elijah had to realize, oh, I'm experiencing another nature of God that I don't even have a context for. I have no experience with that. I don't know what it feels like. I don't even know what to do in this moment, but I recognize it's God. So some of us let go of expectation and move into expectancy. Sometimes our future can't be withheld because we're tying expectations and ideas of how it plays out. The future belongs to the ones that are courageous or the ones that are filled with fear. What kind of future do you want? And we live in a day right now where fear is ruling the minds and hearts of people. And we're getting smaller and smaller. We're becoming less creative, less innovative, less thoughtful. We're backing up into caves. Like, I just want to hide from everything. Guess who's going to create the future? Not you. Not me. This is why the future belongs to the ones that are willing to have courage in their heart to step into a space they've yet to know exist. Right now, there are people around the world that have taken the last two years to rethink everything. While most of humanity is just trying to figure out how to stay happy. And that's important. I value that and I get it. But I'm telling you what, this pandemic afforded us a space in our life to rethink everything. To rethink. It's one of the greatest opportunities. I don't believe God caused it. So please don't leave here thinking that God caused it. I don't believe that. But it's happened. And guess who's creating the future? Creatives, entrepreneurs, innovators. They're creating a world out there that we're about to live in. So we have a choice. We can hide in fear, react in fear, or have courage in our heart and hear what the Lord's saying that we haven't heard yet. 
Well, it doesn't look like it used to. I wonder how much nostalgia is killing the church right now. Man, it's not like it used to be. I mean, gee, it's just not the, yes, it's not the same. That was awesome, but that's not the future. It's just not what God's doing. He's not, he's not a copy and paste God. And yet we want him to copy and paste everything. We want him to just reproduce an old experience, put skinny jeans on it, a baggy t-shirt, and call it new. That's not how God works. But yet we live our life just trying to relive the good old days. So most of the church is in nostalgia, and we're whining about how things aren't instead of realizing we're in a moment to apprehend what isn't yet. This is a very personal message for each one of you, and it's a very message for the entire house here. This is what the future means. You have to let go of the way you think it should happen or what you're familiar with. So it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle. I can't wait to interview Elijah. What would that like? And when you're wrapping your, I mean, when you're doing that motion, you've been humbled, you've been sobered, and you realize, I am so small in the context of what God wants to do. And he went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, now what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said the exact same thing. But I love this. The Lord doesn't respond to his, I'm the only prophet. He says this in verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, go, return to your way. And he goes on and on. Why is this important to me? Because sometimes we need to go into a cave to be confronted with ourselves, And sometimes we're the most courageous person. And then we have this moment of fear. If you're going to leave fear, sometimes you need a cave. You need a cave where God invites you into. You need a space with him to get your courage back. And what's even more beautiful, I, I encourage you, all of you to geek out on chapter 16, 17, 18, and 19 tonight in 1 Kings. It's an incredible story. But after verse 19 of chapter 19, God said, go find a man named Jehu and go find a young man named Elisha. Because God was still busy on the earth and he was creating a future for humanity and he wasn't going to give up on it. Elijah was, but he got Elijah back, and Elijah stepped out. He finds Jehu, and he finds Elisha, and guess what? God continues to move through humanity in the time. So I want to challenge you tonight before we close. We're in a little bit longer than planned. I apologize. What I want to encourage you tonight, the future belongs to either ones that are willing to be courageous or the ones that are going to be fearful. Which one do you want to be? The obvious answer is courage. But I want to challenge you. It belongs to the ones that are willing to step into a space they don't even know exists in this very moment. Why don't you stand? It is a deliberate choice. It's a daily choice. It's a mental, cognitive, it's an emotional, and a spiritual, deliberate choice to choose courage. And everything, every narrative right now is telling you to just go hide. Go somewhere else. Disattach. Disengaged. 
God is looking for people to raise up in a moment like this of major chaos, major confusion. God is looking to raise up people that will actually embrace the future he has in mind in this moment. So, Father, I pray for every person in this room, from front to back, left to right, that this message just wouldn't be for our head, but it would resonate in our soul. And our spirit would come alive tonight, recognizing this is one of the greatest opportunities we've ever been afforded in our lifetime is to be people full of courage in the face of fear, to be people full of destiny in the narrative of just fate. And I pray for courage to rise up in the hearts of people, to step into a space, to experience things that you're doing we've never even experienced yet. And I bless this house, and I bless everyone in this room right now. As we leave this room, something shifts in our soul, in our spirit, and in our mind. And everybody said... Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's talk. If you're interested in learning more about Studio here in Greenville, you can check out our website, studiogreenville.com, and you can give us a follow on Instagram. Our handle is studio.greenville. Have a great week.